Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. She's associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Jody Azuni. We'll be talking about his new book, Semantic Perception, How the Illusion of a Common Language Arises and Persists which is newly published with Oxford University Press. Jody is professor of philosophy at Tufts University. A common philosophical picture of language attempts to begin with the various kinds of communicative acts individuals perform by means of language. This view has it that communication proceeds largely by way of interpretation where we hear the sounds others make and infer from those sounds the communicative intentions of speakers. On this view, communication is a highly deliberate affair, involving complex mediating processes of inference and reasoning. In semantic perception, Jody Azuni argues for a different picture. In fact, Azuni argues that the more common picture actually misconstrues our experience as communicators. On Azuni's alternative, we involuntarily perceive language items as public objects that have meaning properties independently of speaker intentions. Put differently, Azuni argues that meaning is perceived, not inferred, much in the way that we perceive the properties of physical objects. And yet he also argues that our perception of there being a common language, such as English, which supplies the common vehicle for communication, is a kind of inescapable collective illusion. What's more, Azuni argues that the view that a common language is an illusion makes better sense of our experiences and practices with language than its competitors. Semantic Perception is a fascinating and highly original book. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jody Azuni. Hi, Rob. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. I'm uh, right. looking forward to this. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, thanks for joining us today on New Books in Philosophy. Sure enough. Great. Well, today on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Jody Azuni. His new book is titled Semantic Perception, how the illusion of a common language arises and persists. It's just been published with Oxford University Press. And as the title suggests, this book defends a surprising thesis, namely that language use induces a kind of collective illusion. Perhaps more surprising, uh, Azuni argues that his view provides a better, it's more faithful account of our experience of and our practices within language use. Um, uh, that is a, a more accurate rendering of our experience than competing views. Um, so Semantic Perception is a bold, creative book. Um, and if Jody is correct, um, much in the philosophy of language needs some pretty serious rethinking. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but before we get into those details... Jody, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay. Well, in some ways, I guess I look like a standard academic. Um, you know, I've got uh, graduate degrees in mathematics and in philosophy. Um, I've published a lot of academic stuff. Um, 
articles and books, plural. But I also uh, write a bit of fiction and I also write poetry. So um, I guess in a certain sense, I have broad interests and uh, they show up and uh, they often bear philosophically in, in certain ways, not in the sense that I write aesthetics or anything conventional like that, but in the sense that I'm constantly thinking about very different kinds of ways in which we conceptualize and talk about the world, um, which at least in appearances are very strikingly different. The way we do so ordinarily, the way we do so when we're either doing fiction or talking about fiction, and again, when uh, we're engaged in mathematics. Um, there's a sense in which, at least on the surface, the languages that we use seem to shift in some very dramatic and drastic way, um, even if the thinking that goes on behind this is not quite so drastic, doesn't look that way. So anyway, that's um, overall um, the kinds of things that contribute to, to some extent, to why I write about what I write about. And does you, uh, let me just ask one yeah. one one question about the, 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 the fiction and the poetry that you do. Um, does that have a philosophical, uh, dimension to it? That question comes up a lot, especially among uh, people who aren't in philosophy. And, uh, <laughs> and my answer to that is it must. Um, but I'm largely unconscious of that process. I don't sit down and go, Oh wow. The mind body problem. Let me write a poem about that. <laughs> that doesn't happen. It's more like philosophical themes uh, kind of emerge in the process of writing the stuff. But you have to be very careful because there's something very global about philosophical takes on things. And you can read them into work uh, without the author necessarily deliberately putting it there. Now, you might think in my case, well, that's kind of unavoidable, isn't it? You're, you're a philosopher. But nevertheless, I... I don't think it's my place to actually say how much philosophy or my kind of philosophy or my particular philosophical views are informing the fiction and the poetry. It does seem to me that the work goes on to some extent independently. But as I said, that could be an appearance. Right, right, right. Again, can I ask you one, one yeah, further question just about the the interest in mathematics? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, is the interest in mathematics con connected in, in some direct well, way that you can start, see to the fiction? It didn't start that way. Um, I came to philosophy from fiction and literature. I would have majored in English, except I didn't like the English department at NYU at the time. <laughs> so I majored in philosophy instead. And then NYU kept switching its requirements on me. They had distribution requirements. So I'm taking history, and then they say, well, history won't count anymore because we've reclassified history as a, as a humanity, whereas before it was a social science. And then I right. wouldn't, didn't want to take psychology because they insisted you take introduction to psychology. And I thought, well, I don't need introduction to psychology. So I ended up taking math. And... Um, to some extent, at least for someone like me, you have to get through the calculus sequence before you're even finding something interesting. And right. that's when it happened. I suddenly, was, uh, in abstract algebra, I said, oh, this, my God, this is beautiful. So there's an aesthetic appeal that was pulling me in. And then I just started pursuing mathematics. And at a certain point, I was entertaining just going into mathematics quite seriously. Right. 
And then for personal reasons and some other reasons, I ended up back in philosophy. But to some extent, all of this feels like serendipity. Um, I'm bringing the stuff to bear philosophically. Um, in fact, my dissertation work wasn't per se a philosophy of mathematics. It was in logic. It was on the liar paradox. Mm. But my first book turns out to be in philosophy of mathematics, and all the mathematics that I'd done proved to be helpful. But it felt like serendipity. I wasn't intending to do philosophy of mathematics. I didn't even really conceive of an area like that, philosophy of mathematics. I wasn't thinking about it that way. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of um, accident, or what feels like accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a good thing. Um so this actually is a good segue into um, beginning to talk ab about the book um, because uh, you've developed over the course of a lot of work um, uh, a, a very, um, uh, let's say, muscular form, if that's the right metaphor, <laughs> of, no of, of nominalism. Right. Um, it's, general, it's now called, and I, uh, the credit for this term is, uh, I believe it's due to Octavio Bueno. Uh -huh. uh, deflationary nominalism. Ah, uh, so that's right. the that's, distinctive view. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was thinking that the, muscu the, the muscular nom nominalism sounds like there's already too much stuff in the world. Um, <laughs> so, so um, and uh, this book, you, 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 you say, and I think you're correct to say that, that, that the view that you're developing in, in this book, Semantic Perception, doesn't sort of turn on the nominalism. But it does seem to me that... Um, some of your 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 previous work and some of your commitments um, uh, do sort of go on in the background of the book and 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 come out in ways that help uh, help you to explain your motivations for certain things uh, that you say in the book. Yeah. So could you could you give us a, a sketch of 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 your nominalist position? Yeah, in a certain sense, the nominalist position is pretty simple. Um, there. Uh, Philosophy has an extremely long tradition, going back to Plato and Parmenides, of seeing truth as linked to the world in a very, very, actually precise sense. And the precise sense is something like, look, if you've got a statement that's true, it's got, there's got to be something that it's true about. Okay. Right. And in fact, there's a, a couple of things dovetailing here. Well, uh, I put it in terms of truth, but it can also be put in terms of aboutness, and you can get a kind of paradoxical-sounding problem going. Well, um, if I'm talking about Hercules, and there is no such thing, and I'm talking about Mickey Mouse, and there is no such thing, then I'm not talking about different things. But I am talking about different things, so there's got to be something. Right. right. And so there are puzzles like that. And those puzzles are, are not trivial ones in a certain sense. They're, they're in the sense in which they're very deep. They're connecting to uh, cognitive processes about how we conceive of objects, even when we're imagining them and recognize ourselves to be making them up, as well as ways in which language, uh, how language is going to work. If you're going to have truths that actually don't have terms in them that refer, uh, how do those truths work? What forces them to be true? Things like that. So uh, the deflationary nominalism is a very systematic view which uh, has to change a lot to handle all of this. And that's what I've been hard at work doing. But the upshot, largely, is a certain burden of proof is being shifted 
from the nominalist shoulders, which everybody thought is where it was. Look, you're a nominalist. You'd better explain um, how we don't have to talk these ways about these things that you claim don't exist. And now the burden's being shifted the other way to we can talk these ways. Let me show you how that happens. Let me show you how there can even be semantics for this, how it all works beautifully. Um, now you have to give me reasons for thinking that a certain kind of talk really is about something. That's now becoming the non-trivial issue. Is that clear? Right. No, that's very clear. Um, just one further detail, yeah, which yeah. I think is is important. Um, you know, I take it that historically nominalists had been in the business of declaring certain kinds of discourse um, disordered or um, disposable or dispensable. Right. Um, but I take it that that your view tries um, your nominalism tries to show how one can preserve um, ordinary discourses of all kinds of you know fictional objects, numbers, anything that you'd like to uh, uh, to subject to philosophical scrutiny. Right. You can preserve all the discourse. That's right. And even preserve the truth aptness That's of right. the discourse, and then just deny that there's. Anything about which the true statements are true. That's Is right. that it? That's right. And you have to tell a different story about how the truth actness occurs, what's um, right. driving it. You have to tell a story about how the uh, truths are established, what's driving that. Um, uh, and I, there's something else I do. Which is, um, and this is independent of the deflationary nominalism, but in point of fact, I generally think that most of this kind of discourse, which we'll let, let's just call non-referring discourse, uh, mm -hmm. is indispensable. We cannot right. do without it. And that, too, needs an explanation. You know, why is it we have to talk about uh, non-existent beings? Why do numbers have to come into our discourse and functions and things like this? And uh, the story about that is uh, complicated and differs. That is to say, it's not quite the same story about mathematics as it is about fiction. It's not even the same story about different kinds of mathematics. Uh, the motivations, the drivers for indispensability tend to be different kinds of things. We're trying to do something. We're trying to talk about uh, uh, the world in a, a broad enough sense. But then particular demands on the language and the way that uh, the situation is structured are forcing us. I mean, with fictions, it might be a little easier if we, if I say something like this, look, very often you're trying to describe how it seems to somebody. And it would be nice if you could put a scenes operator in front of all your discourse, you know, it seems right. that blah, 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 rather than having, as I often put it, to quantify in there's something that it seems like so and so. Right. But it turns out, for um, um, a relatively impeccable but annoying logical reasons, this isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it. And that drives the indispensability. Right. Well, excellent. Um, and this is also now a nice way into um, uh, the, the semantic perception book. Um, 
because uh, in fact, in the book there are there are two separate methodological interludes, as you call them. Yeah. And the book actually begins with a discussion of certain kinds of methodological considerations, and methodology is 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 being discussed in in various uh, various other places throughout the book. Right. Um. So I, I wanted to start talking about the uh, semantic perception book proper uh, uh, by by picking up on on that. Um. So the book is. Um, uh, again, in, 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 in keeping with some of the commitments of your nominalism, it, it's really concerned to save the appearances, to capture the practices of language use, to uh, remain faithful to what you, what you call in various places the experience of uh, language transactions. Um, in some places, you, you refer to what you're doing as phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all turns on a conception of folk semantics and it seems as if um the uh, the ways in which language use is performed and perceived by as you call them non-professionals um uh, is really in better? a way that isn't that better than <laughs> most philosophers what is it most philosophers would talk about the ordinary person whoever that is or or the man on the street or the yeah. man in the street or you know the quine line which is especially i don't know condescending the layman yeah. <laughs> I can't do this. It seems to be, you know, and by non-professional, I'm also covering a multitude. It's not just philosophers who are professionals, it's linguists. That's right. That's anyway. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, it, but it seems as if the uh, the the folk in the folk semantics, the, right. the 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 phenomenology of the non-professional, is in a way a kind of sort of final court of appeal on. Uh, on the philosophical issues, in a way, it's constantly being brought in uh, as a guide to the philosophical. So let me cut uh, in right story. here. Can yeah. let me cut in right here and say something? Um, I don't think that's quite the right way to put it. Um, okay, that makes me sound a little too much like an ordinary language philosopher, which I'm not. Right. They what I'm what I'm doing here, and this is why there's so much on methodology and an annoying amount in the book on methodology is. What I'm doing here is I'm saying, let's figure out what the nature of the evidence is for various claims and theories that we want to make about semantics and language, etc. And all this stuff about experience, it's evidence if we, of right. course, um, look at it properly. Okay, And that's how I'm seeing it. It's not a final court of appeal in the sense that um, it's only the final court of appeal in the in the sense that any evidence is the final court of appeal. And the analogy I use, I hopefully in the book proper and not in footnotes, because I have a tendency to put the most important things in footnotes, which is really, really bad, um, is I, I, I talk about, you know, frictional phenomena. I talk about, you know, here we start, we're rolling balls, we're pushing objects, they come to a start. A stop. We, in fact, um, have expectations, which to some extent may be biologically hardwired, about how we expect objects to move. Okay, call that folk physics. What's that evidence for? Well, it's evidence of a certain kind of experience. It's evidence of how objects operate in a local way. And to that extent, it's evidence for uh, theories. But the theories needn't be that constrained in certain respects, okay? And I want to understand the ordinary experience of language transactions in pretty much the same way. 
Right. Does so that, that, yeah. All right. So good. So uh, let me let me try to right. So it's not the final court of appeal right. in the in the sense that you're just describing in some in some way that I think you're right, the ordinary language philosopher might have taken him himself to be doing. Um, you're not just describing the way people talk. You're trying to appeal to the way people talk and their the the sort of phenomenology as as you understand it of engaging in conversation as a way of uh what cataloging the evidence or looking to see what is to be explained? Is That's this the way right. that it cataloging the evidence? Uh, looking to see what is to be explained, and you might say, "Well, that's that's a nice Baconian practice." Um, right. You know, haven't we gotten past that a little bit, especially in philosophy of language and linguistics? And the answer is um, no. And the reason we haven't, <laughs> <laughs> the reason we haven't, is except for a couple of really quite inspired. Um, and insightful people, like uh, J.L. Austin is one of my favorite cases of this. Uh, most people, um, I guess I'm going to put this a little harshly. Um, uh, uh, Please. Oh, oh yeah. Like, <laughs> do it, do it. Be hard, be hard. Better for us. Um, you know, a lot of philosophers have 10 ears when it right. comes to how would we say something? And uh, what would we say? And they and people often misdescribe the uh, the experience. And um, Gricians and anyone who's influenced by Grice are especially prone to doing this. Okay, they simply misdescribe the experience um, introspectively. Yeah. So right. there's two things going on. You have to have an ear for the vernacular, as it were. What would we say? And you have to have a, um, a feel for what the experience looks like. And a lot of it, that has just been misdescribed. It's right. often misdescribed for theoretical reasons, but it's also misdescribed because of the nature of the way philosophers present evidence, and not just philosophers, linguists, which is you write down a bunch of sentences on the page, numbered sentences, right. okay? And then you stare at them. And then somebody says, well, you know, everybody's going to notice blah, 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 right? Where blah, blah, blah is some actually pretty sophisticated remark about structured propositions or something like that. And the point is, no, 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 not everybody's going to notice that. That's ridiculous. In fact, when people are talking rapidly, you know, that doesn't happen. Now, right. Let, let me just spell out. There's a phenomenon I want to focus on a lot, which is... Um, you know, most philosophers of language these days, certainly the ones that I'm, I'm interacting with and focusing on, are contextualists. They're recognizing enormous contextual factors, vectors that are affecting how we understand sentences and context and expressions. And these things can change on a dime based on the contextual factors shifting. Okay, this has been, been well recognized, but. The thing that I focus on and what a lot of people don't focus on and it really matters is how invisible all this is to the ordinary, ordinary, <gasps> the non-professional, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the non-professional. And that includes all of us when we're just chit-chatting away like you and I are doing right now. Um, we're just not aware of those factors. Right. OK, and that makes a big difference because there's a kind of processing that goes on of language that's very compartmentalized. 
when we're doing A, we don't think about the fact that we could be doing B. And we're not aware right. of it, except when certain kinds of toggle tricks are introduced, like jokes and things like that, wordplay, puns. Okay, the reason right. these things work, jokes, puns, the reason why we can laugh as animals at a, as a, at a large class of certain kinds of jokes is precisely because our experience of language is so compartmentalized, okay? That's something that's almost uniformly missed by the way that philosophers analyze, uh, philosophers of language will analyze sentences. There's always this compare and contrast thing going on. Here are three sentences. Look at them. Notice the difference. Anyone will notice the difference. And then from that process, they'll build up intuitions, what they'll call language intuitions, and those things will function as evidence for this theory or that theory. And what I'm saying is, my God, this is all screwed up. Okay? <laughs> right. The, this is intuition manufacturing. Now, notice there are lots of, there's a lot of literature that's starting to emerge. Um, uh, Stitchin students and other people are going, oh, intuitions. Nobody should rely on intuitions. Intuitions are really, really bad, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is data, okay? You don't throw away data. You never throw away data. You're out of your mind. But you have to treat it as data. You have to treat it with respect. You have to recognize what's going on and you have to look at it in the wild. Right. So, and this Am is I going on um, too much. N- no, 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 no. <laughs> this is, this is perfect. Um, okay. uh, and very helpful. The, uh, one of the, the considerations that comes up quite early in the book along these lines, and that is actually, you know, if we want to save the appearances, I take it, you know, you think we've got to go actually look at, look at how things appear right. um, and not uh, introduce methodologically certain kinds of, um, I was about to say disinfecting, but uh, maybe that's not exactly the right metaphor, certain kinds of mechanisms that allow us to sort of vet the data, right. you know, too early in the game. Prematurely, um, right. That's right. So one of the, uh, one of the, the things that you, you, you mentioned early in the book and seems to uh, come up throughout is that there are, among non-professionals and professionals, sort of systematic type token confusions, or what, what what we might call confusions, right? That, or or maybe a better way to put it is that um, part of the data, uh, maybe among the appearances we're trying to save, is a kind of messiness with respect to ordinary language transactions and the ways in which we move between types and tokens, or as you put at one point, we see the types through the tokens or the, the tokens are the lens by which we perceive types, uh, uh, in our language transactions. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of messiness? Well, that's important. Messiness is enormously important. Let me point to, um, a nice psychological literature. This is the, um, uh, psychological literature. I'm going to mispronounce his name. This is terrible. Um, uh, Dehaney. Mm. It's not his name. He's, <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And I right. apologize. But anyway, there's a lot of uh, literature on number competence. And it's being studied. And one of the crucial pieces of evidence for what the mechanisms are by which we develop our number competences and what kinds of competences they're built out of, one of the most uh, telling pieces of evidence are the kinds of mistakes we make and don't make. 
This is really big in this literature. For a long time, it's been really big in the linguistics literature. You know, it's one of uh, Chomsky's linchpins for trying to right. establish um, uh, innateness of a certain sort. You know, you don't have a general learning mechanism because if you did, you would make the child doesn't do this because the child would make mistakes A, B, and C, and they don't, but they make these other mistakes D, E, and F. Okay? Right. So what you've got here is something kind of similar, which is there's this weird thing going on with types and tokens where it's very hard to get clear about them, it's very easy to be confused, and our language, the way we talk, systematically rides over the distinction in funny ways. It's not just a morass. I mean, if it were just a morass of confusions, that wouldn't tell you anything. That's like right. I'm in a cloud and, you know, but the, the confusions have systematic elements. And it's on the basis of the particular ways that these confusions are occurring and the elements are occurring that I'm able to, uh, it seems to support a hypothesis. And the hypothesis is that we actually, subliminally, in some sense, um, are thinking of language vehicles as objects with properties, okay? And, um, and by objects with properties, I don't mean, um, I don't mean abstracta, okay? Right. That's already a refinement that we're driven to philosophically because, well, you know, it has to be an abstract object that, you know, that it, with, with instances, each utterance is a particular instance of blah, blah, blah. But the idea is, no, what's operating is something quite akin to the notion of a tool where right. a screwdriver, and this is an analogy I spell out in the book, uh, the weird thing about our experience, of our involuntary experience of a screwdriver, is we both perceive, experience physical properties and functional properties, okay? Right. And in the same way, we see a word as a kind of object with both uh, uh, physical properties, and uh, those end up being rooted in the token once we make this distinction, and um, semantic properties, which kind of correspond to the functional properties of the tool, and those end up, well, any which way, depending on the theorist, okay? Right. But the, the data seems to point to there's this other kind of root experience that's going on that's unstable because it can't possibly if we're looking at things clearly, we go, well, there's no object. I'm not handing a word off to you when you repeat it. You know, right. I say a word, you repeat the word. That's not like me. That's not like me handing you a screwdriver. There's an object goes from hand to hand. Here, it's got to be another instance of the same type, right? But right. the claim is nevertheless, our experience is not of that form. Now, the analogy here is supposed to be, I think, is very tight to what's going on with the number competency, where certain kinds of mistakes and certain kinds of weird things that happen when we do computations with numbers are on, the, on certain theories are due to an underlying processing that's treating these as kinds of magnitudes and trying to compare the, the size of the magnitudes. You with right. me? Yeah. And that's not... You know, again, you're like, that can't be how I'm thinking of numbers. But right. there's a subpersonal process, and that is how you're doing it. And the claim is something like that is going on here. So these mistakes turn out to be extremely valuable, but they're valuable in an evidential way. That's, that's what their purpose should be.
Right. So th yeah. then this is um, helps us to sort of get out the, the, the what we might think of as the main thesis of the book. Uh, again, sort of nicely uh, um, anticipated by the title, Semantic Perception. The view is that uh, – let me see if I'm getting this right. I mean there's a lot of parts in it. So let me try to at least get the main ones. That the right way to understand the experience of language transactions is to think of them as uh, sort of language items as objects of our perception where we perceive them as we might a physical object and part of the perception is – is is their semantic properties? Yeah. We see, we see language items as propertied with meaning, mm -hmm. and that with meaning that we see them as public objects. Okay, right. we experience them as public objects that are, to some extent, is, that are, you know, largely independent of us. That's why we have to we think of ourselves as learning a language or acquiring a language. There's this public object. It's out there. It's got its properties. We can collectively change those properties, semantic properties. That's part of our understanding of our language. This is what we think we can do. Uh, but yes, and the claim is that this is an involuntary experience. Right. That so, for example, there are, and I try to give a lot of examples that illustrate this. Um, if you if uh, you see certain shapes on a wall, you involuntarily and those shapes are you know, certain particular shapes. You'll go right. that says uh, Webster's New World Dictionary, for example. Right. <laughs> okay, um, and you will involuntarily, if you're a native speaker, you will involuntarily have this experience. You will involuntarily have this experience even if you know that that shape appeared there by accident, some sort of uh, contingent accident, that nobody designed it, nobody put it there. No, There are no communicative intentions lurking on the part of any supernatural beings, nothing like that. You will right. still involuntarily experience this as an, as an object with particular semantic properties. Yeah. Right. So the I take it that the involuntariness is also – I mean is important to the story mm -hmm. because it's also a, um, a kind of – at least phenomenologically, it's a kind of immediacy. There is no, oh, look at the shapes. Um, I wonder if those shapes form a word or the, whether those shapes form words in a sentence. This is a kind of uh, – it's like seeing the screwdriver and – perceiving that it can do certain kinds of things is this right that there's a uh there's a non-inferential it's not you're not, you're not inferring these things right. it's sort of a they assail you 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 see them in the way that you might or close to the way you might see um the shape of of an object that's for right example. that's right um it, it's uh involuntary it's uh, non-inferential it's the claim, and now this claim is a little more subtle, and it takes evidence to establish, it's not even subpersonally inferential. And inferential right. in the following sense. I mean, here's a, a story that some people might like to tell. Here, here's something on the wall. Um, somebody would, who, with a communicative intention, somebody who's trying to communicate something to me, would uh, recognize or hope that somebody out there uh, uses certain conventions in a certain way. I'm going to use these conventions in that way to get across to them, right? right, right. Nothing like that is going on at all. 
The important thing is we often have lots of intentions when we talk to one another. And some of those uh, intentions are communicative in, uh, in, in a perfectly acceptable sense of the word. But these are all secondary. The experience comes first. Right. And, and then the intentions come second. Well, let me ask you then, to, I mean, you've, we've, we've been speaking more or less indirectly about one of the main targets uh, of the semantic perception book, which is Gricean, Neo-Gricean uh, um, trends in philosophy of language, which are, are pretty dominant, uh, uh, yeah, as I understand totally it. Yeah, they're almost dominant sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> some days I no. wake up and it's like, ah, they're everywhere! Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you let's talk a little bit more explicitly then about the target? So the the, the Gricean picture, which is so influential and even uh, crops up in places, um, uh, I guess unintentionally in in lots of ways. People, uh, maybe I should say, professionals seem to uh, have maybe through osmosis even gotten Gricianism as a philosophy of language. Sort of, uh, uh, they've, they've acquired toolkit. it somehow. Yeah, communicative intentions are a standard toolkit that a lot of people just have in their back pocket and pull out at a moment's notice. Right. So the story on the Gricean story is that language exchanges, the communication or language transactions, however, you want, are these highly interpretive occasions they are about recognizing intentions and intentions about intentions and maybe even recognizing in others that they recognize intentions that we have um and it's the i would say the main target of this book is this very broadly speaking now gricean account of of language use um so could you tell us a little bit about why you think that that gricean picture goes wrong well, it goes wrong in a couple of ways. It's, um, it's a very ambitious picture, and there's lots of different uh, flavors to it, lots of different ways that they try to imp- it, it, it tries to be implemented. Broadly speaking, it tries to anchor language use in um, uh, basically, I guess you'll call it propositional attitude psychology. Right. It doesn't have to be located at the surface of the mind. The inf- it's, um, in this sense, the Gricean picture is very much like the old, um, the old uh, sense data views, which said, right. oh, there's a lot of things packed into perception, but most of that is inferred, like depth. But the inferences are uh, occurring habitually or, you know, you almost want to say subpersonally. So right. on the Gricean picture, uh, it doesn't have to be on on one or another Gricean picture, it doesn't have to be that people are aware or are any longer aware of the uh, nesting of intentions, okay? And that's important because one way to bring evidence against the view, you might have thought, is to say, well, I'm looking at the phenomenology here, everybody's experience, and I'm not seeing these things. Right. Right? And uh, that direct route against the view doesn't work for just the reasons I said. But you have to go after, you have to find more indirect ways that it doesn't work, which is what I try to do in the book by showing how many of our verbal practices and our expectations and the way we pose questions and the way that we see options, uh, all of it relies on the um, uh, language being publicly perceivable with a certain semantics, right, with, with certain meanings and not others, and 
then the communicative intentions, the propositional attitude aspect coming in on top of this. Right. Okay. So that's a way in which you try to illustrate uh, how the Gricean views have um, uh, mistreated uh, the evidence. And this is a certain body of evidence. Now, uh, it has to be pointed out that the Gricean picture, broadly speaking, is in a very peculiar position philosophically. Everybody kind of pulls it out of their back pocket in one asystematic way or another. Um, it's very commonly used. And at the same time, everybody kind of knows who studied it at all carefully that the it seems to be riddled with counterexamples. Okay. Right. And to some extent, but I do a lot more than this, but to some extent, I recalibrate and re-examine these counterexamples, but with the eye of not seeing them merely as counterexamples to which you try to give a narrow fix, but seeing, right. oh, this is all arising because of the initial way in which language is being misconceived. Right. You can see why these counterexamples are arising and why they would have to arise. And it seems uh, that part of the trouble um, that um, sort of befalls the Gricean approaches has to do with a kind of, um, in your view, an early error about the what is said business, right? That that they've got a, they begin from a, a, a uh, conception of what expressions say. Well, um, what, what happens is, I mean, there's lots of different ways in which it all goes wrong. But one of the ways it goes wrong is what is said is supposed to be uh, in, at the hands of some Gricians, it, it, ha it, it has this sh shadowy double life, which right. is unstable. And the shadowy double life is, it is a theoretically infiltrated notion, so it has right. certain properties. Uh, they vary, but, um, you know, um, it'll have certain needed theoretical properties. And at the same time, it is its evidence is supposed to be intuition, intuitive. Right. Okay? And it turns out, well, it, there's nothing that can support that. Okay? <laughs> if you put pressure on the intuition, the theoretical elements crash and burn, um, and the theoretical elements might survive, but you have to give a very different evidential construction to get to right. them. So that's basically what happens, and that happens with what is said. That happens also with the notion of implicature. There's a number of uh, standard Gricean tools that has to do that affects truth conditional content. There are right. a whole bunch of absolutely crucial notions here, which have very sophisticated theoretical roles that simply go uh, eons beyond anything that's supported in the phenomenology. And, and then right. what you have to do is you have to, you know, square this. Right. And But nonetheless, you think that some of the, I mean, even uh, people like me who haven't studied this, the Gricean stuff very carefully know about the, the sort of conversational norms stuff, um, the relevant stuff and, and, and the rest. Um, now, you think that this could be, uh, th th this part of the Gricean story can be a perfectly adequate explanation down the, down the line. Absolutely, is that right? yeah. By no means am I... Uh, 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 dumping it all. And that stuff in particular, I think, 
survives nicely in the in in a in a very different context in the context of semantic perception. Okay. Right. So and right. So let's talk about that. Why it's so intuitive. Right. So good. So let's let's talk about that. So so we we're we're. Your, your target is the the Gricean stuff. It, it it carries the day in most discussions of these things. Um, and let's get back then to the semantic perception view. So right. okay. the, the the alternative picture is uh, I'm, when when we're transacting in the currency of language, uh, I'm 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 not engaging in or or even subconsciously engaging in reading intentions and second order intentions and your beliefs about my intentions. I'm perceiving as I would perceive objects um, in the form of words and other kinds of language items. And the perception is such that part of what is being perceived is semantic properties, meaning. That's right. Um, uh, and so. Now, uh, keep in mind. Yeah. This can be, this is there, but it can be layered quite thickly with. Um, um, monitoring of intentions and things like that. Okay, so for example, um, uh, uh, there's a sentence, and I utter this sentence, and it has a standard. Uh, it, you interpret it as you know, you experience it as meaning a, right? Right. But of course, the way I said it in that context, either something's wrong because it doesn't quite fit. Right. And now something happens. And what happens is very Gricean. Right. Okay. What happens is uh did the person make a mistake? Were they incompetent? Were uh and I'm I'm stressing this part because that's always part of it. Or were they trying to indicate something? Was there an in joke? Was there this? Did they violate one of the maxims and therefore this is going on? So all that can happen, but it happens on the basis of an experience of the sentence, which we experience in the moment as meaning a. Okay. Right. So that's so like a so a sentence of the sort you know Bill went to the top of the build to the edge of the top of the building and jumped. Right. Um, so the contextual features will be brought in if there's some reason to doubt that what I perceive to be the properties of that sentence. Well, man, that's uh, a nice sentence, right? And people right. like to point to that example a lot. So um, imagine a case where you say that, and um, uh, the normal way to read it, apparently, is that he committed suicide. <laughs> right. But there, there's Bill sitting at the next table when you say this, right? And he looks right. okay. And so you say, okay, what was going on here? And, right. and and now, depending on how you flesh, flesh out the context, uh, there will be different experiences of what's being said. Sometimes of what is said, literally, what is said can flip, but also right. what is uh, 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 perceived as implicated can flip, and what is said is left alone. And this all depends on the, on the contextual factors that can play in, and a lot of this is involuntary. Okay? Right. But... Again, this is a place where the Gricean maxims will have a home. Right. Okay. Uh, now, one of the things I want to stress, uh, and I do stress it in the book, is that to some extent, the Gricean maxims are an optimality story. Um, 
you know, when everybody is on top of their game, at there's something you, you say something and it doesn't fit, you apply the Gricean maxims, and then you have a chuckle or the two of you wink. You you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But right, there's right. there's tons of suboptimality, and that's important because suboptimality tells us things like, oh, we're not applying a Gricean maxim here because the person made the following of a large list of blunders, <laughs> okay? Or they're kind of thick or not so bright about so-and-so. And, and this is very important, too. So what happens is there's a sense in which a very sophisticated story about mind reading, which I don't right. do in the book, because right, right. the book's already big enough. Right. Um, I don't do in the book, but a very sophisticated story about mind reading can be built on the semantic perception view rather than having to infiltrate the semantic perception view. The latter is problematic. I mean, one of the things I don't talk about, but I thought about, is that you can have, I believe it's the uh, autism syndrome, high-functioning autistic folk who are pretty good with a large aspect of the language, what is perceived as literal meaning, are very bad at mind reading. Okay, this right. is a story that's nicely compatible with what I, with semantic perception view. Uh, literally, it is not so comfortable with Gricean view. Right, right. So, the let me use one. I'll ask you to, to talk a little bit about one of the other examples that recurs in the book about the uh, the ant on the beach that uh, is just crawling along the sand right. in a way Putnam's that leaves the. Example. Right, right, good. Right. That leaves the the impression of, or, or or creates the shape of of words. I'm not exactly remembering what the ant scrawls out. Um, well, there were a is it that of it's so it's so hot in here? Or, or... I'm cold is the one I like. <laughs> right, right. It scrawls out I'm cold. Okay, by and it's a sheer total accident. It's an ant. It's not being controlled by aliens. <laughs> and what's cool about that example because it shows how uh, complex in a certain sense the, the automatic mechanisms are it saturates I'm right you take I'm you'll experience I'm as as, as referring to the ant that's right yeah that's and so that's that's um and I make a big deal of those kinds of things because the mechanisms that are operating here uh, um you have to show it's an interesting thing because they can be very sophisticated the trick is you can recognize the very sophisticated and a lot of standard cases and then really stupid <laughs> in right. these other cases. And that's evidence. That right. is precisely the evidence uh, that what we're dealing with here is not a general, for example, optimality mechanism, right. but a much less intelligent, uh, I do this kind of mechanism. You know, um, I saturate, I'm... Uh, based on a uh, causal input or, you know, because it's the ant that did it, that kind of thing. Right. Or, right, or right. other kinds of background factual stuff. I mean, I contrasted the example with I am that I am on a cliff. Right. That's and right. there we would saturate it differently. Or at least, oh. I mean, being having gone to church as a young boy, I saturated differently. That's right. That's you know, right. I, I, I don't saturate it as the graffiti artist, but instead, you know, God. 
so it's it's really it's really in some ways quite a sophisticated mechanism the reference the uh, the uh, saturation mechanism but nevertheless it's stupid and I give examples that show where it's stupid where you have little smiley faces and or uh, the bush the stick figures and you ask who is running and then right. it turns out uh, this question makes sense if it's a caricature of bush but it doesn't make sense if it's a stick figure even though you'll say he's running right so you right. saturate but you won't push it further semantically very and that's weird do so you see mechanisms yes. are coming apart right and so but the the fact that when i learned that the the sentence drawn in the sand i'm cold is the product of you know ant. this a mindless ant um that is not the subject, you know, not subject to intentions or any, any of this thing that that's not enough to dissolve the perception uh, that the, that, that the, the sand, what's in the sand is, is propertyed, right? It is semantically right. propertyed. And right. saturated. You can't even get rid of the saturation. Right. You know, right. You, so good. And, and, and you're right. And in that sense, it's just like, uh, uh the visual illusion. Right. You cannot right. eliminate it. And that's really important. That's what makes visual illusions evidence. And that's right. what makes so, this evidence. Right. So this is um, uh, the, the, a good occasion to mention what's on the cover of the book. Oh, right. Which is the Rubik's Cube illusion, which um, I, when, I, when I got the book in the mail, I knew that there was an illusion. Um, and it's obviously the, the object uh, that pr that's portrayed on the book is something that we now would call a Rubik's Cube. I don't know what they would have called it before 1980-something. But um, uh, it's an interesting illusion uh, uh, because um, unlike the, the, the Mueller-Lyer lines, which I think I can – it seems to me I can think my way into perceiving those lines as um, being of the same length. Really? You can? I can't do that. Oh, oh, you um, mean you stare at them long enough and you go, yeah, they're the same length? Yes. Really? You, you actually see them as the same length? That's how it seems to me, yeah. There are a lot of people out there with little electrodes and things who would like to talk to you. Oh, really? No, okay. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> um, but this well, one doesn't work that way. You haven't been able to... No, this one, this is what's so, this is why I, I carry the book around with me and a little piece of paper with two holes cut out because um, <laughs> I'm bothered by the fact, and I've manipulated this in all kinds of ways. I've, you know, covered up only half of the two squares and, you know, I've done all kinds of things. So I cannot think my way, uh, I can make no progress even in thinking my way out of this illusion by, by way, which. Let me point okay, out yeah. something that's very interesting because I've shown this illusion to people to non-philosophers, right? Or non-vision scientists, you know, just, you know, lawyers and stuff. And people have the same reaction that you have. They want to get on top of the illusion. They want to see their way through it. I find that a very interesting response. And well, they good. can't. Well, that's good. So that you find it an interesting response is, is part of what I was um, uh, getting at because um, uh I take it that this is um, – maybe it's it's not correct to call this an analogy. Maybe this is a little bit closer than an analogy would be because the, the main sort of um, lesson of the book, semantic perception, is that language is like this – like visual illusions but maybe this particular 
this particular illusion, um, especially if you're willing to believe me when I say I can think my way out of the Mueller liar lines. I cannot think my way out of this illusion. I cannot help but see the two tiles as different colors and then see them as the same uh, no matter what I do. Um, and that this is what language or the idea of a common language or the idea that when we are engaging in this funny kind of coordinated behavior uh, involving language transactions, that we are trading in some kind of common thing. With semantic properties that they have individually and by themselves. Right. We cannot escape that illusion. Okay, let no me ask how knowledgeable we become about the, the actual situation. We cannot okay, let escape me, it. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me just ask now, going all the way back to OK Bowsma and people like that, what makes it an illusion if it's inescapable? Okay, I'm very <laughs> upset about that. I am. I'm upset about the word illusion and hallucination because okay. neither of them do the job right. And okay. in the book at the beginning, I, I considered coining the word, what was it? Uh, halluc- oh. Well, no, uh, hallucination. Yeah, that was really yeah. horrible. And later on, I thought of the word hallusion. <laughs> and I'm thinking of using the word hallusion, although people who love me are saying, please, please do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I'd probably just stick it in a poem somewhere. But, <laughs> but the problem is illusions are understood as things that we can get past. Hallucinations, I mean, Austin was on to this, I think, and, right. and discussed the distinction between the words very nicely. Hallucinations are things, you know, where we're seeing something and it's not there. And this is not what the language illusion is. There are uh, these physical events that are taking place. They're physical, right? right. You know, there, there are things on the page. There are diagrams. And it's, and it's not that uh, we're not seeing them, in some weird way, we, we, we do see them, although sometimes their properties, their precise properties get obliterated by the language experience. But so, it, so it's not a hallucination, but it's not an illusion in, in the sense that you're just describing. We are so locked into a very systematic picture. It has holes and little flaws, the type token stuff shows. That if right. you start to press it, it becomes bewildering. What is it I'm experiencing here? It can't be that, right? right? But nevertheless, uh, we can't escape from it. So um, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe you know. Think about it. You know, say the word "hallusion" every now and then, and see if it grows on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but slightly more seriously let me okay. let me just press this one w- once more uh, and not and not use the sort of one liner if it's inescapable it's not an illusion um so we're we we've spent almost an hour talking mm-hmm. um we agree to that um uh on one picture of what's happened or transpired in this hour there has been a there is a language called English mm-hmm. that we have been trading in. Been um, it has been the right? right. It's been the currency by which these transactions have been occurring. Right. The semantic perception view says what we perceive uh, sentences, words, linguistic items as 
having meaning properties right. uh, in and of themselves, independent right. of um, downstream uh, views about intentions and second order thoughts and all kinds of things. Or contextual factors. We don't. We that's don't, right. None of that is seen. Now, that's a semantic perception view, period. Okay. Now, deflationary nominalism comes in or something. Good. Like that, that. That's where I was heading. Yeah, so now the right. thought is right. all of this stuff has been going on, but the. The talk of the common currency, the language, English, that's a cog on which nothing's turning. That's something that is dispensable. That's something that's doing a lot of um, uh, uh, um, distracting work. It's doing um, a lot of distracting work. It is not dispensable in the sense that we can stop using the language. We right, can't. right. We right. have to talk about that. But it is dispensable in the sense that we can recognize as a matter of the science that that's not what's going on. Okay. Right. And to some extent here, I want to defer to results in cognitive science and linguistic science and things like that, which talk about language capacities, the brains developing in a certain way, our brains, yours and mine, having had a similar enough nurturing experience that we don't find talking to each other interminably bewildering, yeah. right? Um, and the story of what's really going on will be a story in those terms, okay? The deflationary anomalist says, look, there can't be any type, there can't be any such thing as English. But even more specifically, of course, as we find scientific explanations develop, they do not trade on that stuff. They trade on this other stuff that I've been talking about, the brain and uh, linguistic capacities, et cetera. So am I uh, addressing the question? No, that's, that's right. So okay. let me then just ask one, yeah. one, one, one further follow-up, uh, and, and, and then I'll, I'll thank you for, for, the, for, for your time and, and, and for, the, for the discussion. Um, so how much of the book um, do you see as – uh, issuing a kind of promissory note or a prediction about where the science, the, the language and brain science is, is going. Um, there are key moments in the book where you say things like, look, there, here are some empirical results. We're, we're, we need more empirical confirmation of this. But given the results we have, this looks to be what's going on. And the semantic perception view accommodates that. Gricean, neo-Gricean views don't. Um, so how much, uh, I, I, how much of the view do you think is still up for grabs with the science that's, to come? I think, I actually think a lot of it is, I take okay. empirical verification extremely seriously. I'm talking about the phenomenology. I'm relying on my, uh, picture of how the phenomenology works. Right. And I try to give arguments and I try to give thought experiments. But, and I indicate this more than once in the book, all of this is open to psychological testing. Right. And I have, in a broad way, a picture of exactly what kinds of psychological tests are needed. Okay? And I think this can be verified. And a lot of the psychological testing will take the form of the kind of thing I've been seeing in the mathematic, mathematical competence literature or in um, uh, the vision science. Uh, right. connecting specifically to visual illusions and things like that. So I think an enormous amount of it is is testable. I'm banking that I'm going to come out to be largely right. 
uh, empirically, but it's simply open to empirical study, a great deal of it. That said, there's an enormous amount of philosophy in it, of course, but the philosophy, as I think any philosophical view in this area, has to be firmly rooted on empirical results. Okay, so that's what I think. Well, great. Um, you've been really generous with your time. Um, and uh, I want to thank you, Jody, for, for talking us, uh, to us about uh, semantic perception. Oh, thank you. How the illusion of a common language arises and persists. Um, I always ask people uh, at the end of an interview um, what they're up to next. I usually say I feel bad about asking somebody who's just published a book what they're doing next. But uh, I know that I don't have to feel bad in this case. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so Jody, what, what, what's the next, uh, what's the next project? Well, actually now I'm writing a book, uh, I guess it would be roughly speaking about, um, um, object experience or more oh, right. broadly about, uh, the various ways in which we, um, uh, talk about or see objects to be in the world. Okay. Um, there are two aspects of the book. I guess the book is about, uh, two thirds finished now. Um, oh, nice. One aspect of it is the connection to uh, quantification and logic. Um, I've had a lot to say about this about this in the past, of course, but I'm bringing it to bear more directly on um, some literature on quantifier variants and things like that, and rethinking mm-hmm. all of that. And then the other half is to think about um, basically the kinds of cues, psychological cues, both both visually and uh, in terms of language that uh, impel us to see uh, objects of beginning and ending as we see them to begin and end. And I'm thinking of this not just in terms of physical objects, which I take to exist, but also our experience of how we distinguish um, uh, all the abstractive that many of us like to talk about. Right. So that's the current book that I'm working on. Well, that sounds very uh, interesting. Um, and uh, maybe when it's out, we can talk to you again. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, until then, let me just thank you again for your time. It's been uh, fascinating. The book is Semantic Perception, How the Illusion of a Common Language Arises and Persists. The author is Jody Azuni. Uh, Jody, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Jody Azuni of Tufts University. We're talking about his new book, Semantic Perception, How the Illusion of a Common Language Arises and Persists, newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.